welcome and thank you so much for joining us online for our service. I especially want to welcome today those who have just begun joining us for our services in the last few months. Maybe you've never even been into our building. And perhaps you're someone who is just exploring the Christian faith. And if that is the case, I hope you'll find our church to be a very good place to do that. One of the questions that people often have when they are uh, beginning to explore Christianity is, why should I trust the Bible? You Christians say that Scripture is inspired by God. Why should I trust that? Why should I believe that? That is, I think, an excellent question. And while there are several good reasons for believing that the Bible is inspired by God, one of those was emphasized in the video that you just saw. And that is the remarkable unity of the Bible, how the Old and New Testaments fit together to reveal one story, God's great plan of redemption for his people. Now, this is remarkable, I think, this unity of the Bible, because unlike the documents of, of some major religions of the world, the Bible was not written by merely one person. In fact, Jesus Christ did not write any of the books of the Bible. The books of the Bible were composed by about 40 different authors from different regions, and they were from different backgrounds, from a wealthy king to an uneducated fisherman to a sheep herder like the prophet Amos. And these books of the Bible were written over a period of about 1,400 years, and yet... They all fit together like the beautifully crafted pieces of a divinely inspired puzzle revealing one story, God's great plan of redemption for his people. Now today, we move from the Old Testament to the first of the 27 books of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and it's a book that powerfully illuminates the one story plan leaking together Old and New Testaments. It begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and it goes into the birth narrative, the passages we often read at Christmas time about the birth of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew ends with the resurrection of Jesus and his appearance to his disciples. One of the key words in the Gospel of Matthew is the word fulfill or fulfilled, some form of the word fulfill. Because Jesus fulfills things. What does Jesus fulfill? Well, three things, I think, in particular. Number one, Jesus comes and fulfills prophecies. Many prophecies of the Old Testament. More of these are emphasized in the Gospel of Matthew than the other three Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John. Furthermore, Jesus, in his own words, fulfills the law. The law of God given in the Old Testament. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. I think this means that Jesus came to bring the law toward its intended goal, to bring to fruition the entirety of the meaning of the law. Thirdly, Jesus comes to fulfill God's will. As he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Father, not my will, thy will be done. Jesus comes to fulfill 
prophecies, specific prophecies from the Old Testament. By some estimates, a hundred of them fulfilled in the New Testament. He comes to fulfill the law, and he comes to fulfill God's will in his one-story plan. Now today, as we look at the Gospel of Matthew very briefly, this critically important book, we're going to look at a passage that tells us about the time when Jesus was tempted by Satan. Pastor Brian read it just a moment ago. But to understand the temptation of Jesus, I think it's important to understand what immediately precedes it. And what immediately precedes the temptation of Jesus was his baptism. At the very end of Matthew chapter 3, we read that John the Baptist was baptizing people. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance. He predicted that one was coming after him who was greater than he, and that was Jesus. And we read these words in Matthew 3 and verse 13, when Jesus actually comes to be baptized. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus didn't need to be baptized because he had sinned, but he was bringing about our, our, our example, becoming our example, showing what a full and complete life with God should involve. Then he consented, that is, John consented to baptize him, and immediately he, Jesus, went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Now note those words, they're critically important. What we see happening here, we see the Trinity at work. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Son, Jesus, is being baptized, coming up out of the water, God the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon him, and God the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. When God the Father says this, this is my beloved Son, he's echoing words from Psalm 2. When he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is what immediately precedes the temptation of Jesus. Now with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, and Satan begins to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. First, Satan challenges Jesus' identity as the Son of God. We read, and the tempter, that's Satan, came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now remember what immediately preceded this, God's words, you are my Son, my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Satan is tempting him, if you are the Son of God. Theologian R.C. Sproul says the emphasis in this sentence and our understanding should be on the word if. Satan is challenging what God the Father had just said. And this is the way Satan tempts people. In the Garden of Eden at the very beginning uh, of creation in Genesis chapter 3, the first book of the Bible, we find the very first words out of Satan's mouth. He comes in the form of a certain to Eve in the garden. And he says, 
did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God had just said that to her. And Satan said, did God actually say that? He now comes to Christ and says, if you're the son of God, do this. Adam and Eve failed. Jesus prevailed. Satan challenged his identity at the Son of God. Number two, Satan tempted Jesus by misusing Scripture. In his second temptation, we read in Matthew 4, verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, quote, he will command his angels concerning you and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan is actually quoting scripture from the Old Testament book of Psalms. This is from Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm. It begins, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shout of the Almighty. It's talking about God as our dwelling place and God's protective care for those who abide in him, with him. Nowhere in Psalm 91 warrants throwing yourself off of a cliff or off of the pinnacle of the temple to see if God will catch you. Nothing in the psalm hints at that, of course. Satan is pulling a verse out of context and using it wrongly. Jesus then responds with correct use of Scripture. Now, there's a lesson in this for us, and it is a critically important lesson. There are two very important rules for interpreting and understanding Scripture. The first one is this. Always understand a verse or a passage of Scripture in its setting, in its context. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say by taking a verse out of context, just as you can make a, a person look foolish by taking uh, uh, their words out of context. Maybe you've started to see some political ads on television. I hate to tell you, we're going to see a lot of those this year. And you're probably going to see people's words taken out of context to build a case against them. Well, it's easy to do that. That's exactly what Satan does. Always interpret Scripture in its proper context. Countless cults and deviant, deviant theologies have begun by taking verses out of context, using them in a way they were not intended to be used. Second rule for interpreting Scripture is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Because the Bible is a unified whole, and Scripture does not contradict itself because God does not contradict himself, we can take a passage or a verse that's less clear and understand it in light of passages that are more clear. We can interpret Scripture with Scripture. So two rules, always interpret Scripture in its context. Secondly, interpret Scripture with Scripture. Satan violates the first one. Jesus corrects him with the second one. And Jesus responds to Satan. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then Satan tempts Jesus to forsake his mission. For the wealth and the power of this world, and we read in Matthew 4 and verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. 
And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan's temptation to Jesus was take it now. Take the world, take the power, take the glory for yourself. Take it now. Don't worry about going to the cross. Don't worry about three difficult years of teaching and enduring the sufferings of this world. Take it now. But Jesus knew what Psalm 2, verse 8 said. Verse 7 said uh, of the Father speaking to the Son, You are my Son. Today I've begotten you. And then verse 8 says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. Jesus knew what the Father had already said. The kingdoms of this world, as the book of Revelation says, they have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Satan tempted Jesus to bypass the suffering and to take the wealth and the power for himself now. Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I wonder if Satan sometimes tempts us like this to take the pleasure now rather than taking God's ordained way, God's prescribed way, God's prepared way. To forsake the waiting and the hard work and the difficult path that requires endurance to take what you want, take what's available now, instead of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, worshiping the Lord first and only with your life. Now, you may have noticed that in each of these three temptations, Jesus responded in the same way. Jesus relied on the truth and the power of God's written word. In verse 4, he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In verse 7, Jesus said again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And in verse 10, Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Notice something. Jesus didn't debate Satan with his superior intellect, so he couldn't, certainly could have done that. Jesus had a much sharper sword. All he did was quote scripture three times, right out of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, what does this tell us about Jesus' view of scripture? What does that teach us about Jesus' view of scripture? Well, I think it teaches us three things. Number one, Jesus believed scripture was true. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he says to the Father, your word is truth. Jesus believed it was true. And secondly, he believed it was authoritative. For Jesus to quote a scripture was to settle a matter. We see this in his conversations with some of the religious leaders like the scribes and Pharisees who often sought to trip him up or catch him in something wrong that he would say. Jesus would quote a scripture and that would settle a matter. He does the same thing here with Satan. Jesus believed that Scripture was authoritative. Thirdly, he believed it was powerful, that it had power to defeat Satan's lies, 
deceits, accusations, temptations. He believed it was true. He believed it was authoritative. He believed it was powerful. Now, what does Jesus' example teach us? What does it teach us about dealing with our own temptations in life? Dealing with things that might otherwise deceive us or lead us down a wrong path. Temptations to forsake our own calling by God and uh, pursue pleasure apart from the will of God. What does that teach us? I think it teaches us that we can do exactly what Jesus did. We can say, it is written, it is written, it is written. There's strength to overcome temptation in God's written word if we will use it as Jesus did. Now, I'd like to take just a few minutes and look at this passage of Scripture and how Jesus replied to temptation and ask what it teaches us, what it teaches us about life, what it teaches us about temptations we'll face, how we should, should apply this. What's the practical application of this for you and me? Number one, understand your identity in Christ. Now, first you've got to be in Christ, so I'm saying this to those who have embraced the salvation that Jesus provided for us when he died on the cross and bore the judgment for our sins was resurrected from the grave and calls us to be our followers. The Bible says to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you have embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you are, in the words of Scripture, in Christ. You have a new identity. It's an in Christ identity. The passage in the Bible that I think speaks most clearly and strongly to this is Ephesians chapter 1. We read these words by the Apostle Paul. Notice his use of the word in, in reference to our relationship to the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Christ, in him, in the beloved. As a Christian, your primary identity, your primary identity is your in Christ identity. My primary identity is not as a pastor, even though when people ask me what I do, that's usually the first thing I'll say, I'm a, I'm a pastor, but that's not my primary identity. My primary identity is not even as a, a husband or a father as important as those roles are. My primary identity is my in Christ identity, and so is yours if you have embraced the salvation of Jesus. It's not our vocation. It's not your family relationship or ethnicity or desires or hobbies that provide the foundation for your identity. It is having been accepted by God 
on the basis of the work that Jesus did for you on the cross. It is having been adopted into his family. It is having attained the gift of sonship God provides through faith in Jesus Christ. That's your identity. Your primary identity is your in Christ identity. That's your foundational identity. Now, knowing this, knowing this provides much strength when facing the temptations of the world. Knowing this. And students, I think it is especially important for you as you're entering your teenage years, on the latter side of those years, as you're, as you're heading into the world, heading out to, to college, off to school, those years are so very formative and so challenging to our identity. When you know who you are in Christ, there is great strength in that to avoid letting the world degrade you by lesser things. Drunkenness. Drug use, wrong relationships. You know, with all the things going on in our world right now, we've kind of forgotten that there's still a serious drug crisis in our world. Serious opioid crisis. People are still dying from drug overdose. And I would just say to you students, that the, the safest thing is never to start down that path. And one of the best ways to avoid letting this world tempt you, pull you, degrade you, letting friends tempt you, pull you, degrade you, is by knowing you're in Christ's identity, knowing you've been chosen by God. God has placed you in Him, in the Beloved. He has adopted you. Know who you are. Understand you're in Christ's identity. Secondly, Build your life on the foundation of God's Word, rightly understood and applied. And friends, it is so important to understand Scripture in its context. That's why it's best not to do your Bible reading by just picking up the Bible every day and going to a random passage, flipping through, looking for a verse that you think may speak to you. It's important to read the Bible in a more systematic way than that. Not that you've got to read through the whole Bible start to finish, but I would at least read a book at a time so you understand God's intent there uh, in its context. In fact, if you've never read through the New Testament, this would be the perfect time to start. We're going to go through the New Testament books between starting today and going through the end of the year. We'll finish with Revelation in December, the book of Revelation. This would be a fantastic time for you to read the New Testament if you've never done that. Start at the beginning of Matthew and uh, follow with us. You may not stay right in sync with the book we're on each Sunday, but it would be a terrific thing to do um, in this season. Jesus believed Scripture was true and authoritative and powerful against Satan's devices. In fact, Jesus lived his life in fulfillment of Scripture. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, you see, you'll see how many times he did something, and Matthew writes that the Scripture might be fulfilled. 
Know your in Christ identity. Build your life on the foundation of God's word, rightly understood and applied. And number three, don't be deterred from your God-ordained purpose by lesser pursuits. Satan tried to get Jesus to take something less. This world, this kingdom, the kingdoms of this world and all their glory. He tried to get him to take something less than what God had prepared for him. Tried to get Jesus to take away to power and pleasure without suffering and endurance. I wonder how often in life we are tempted to say something far below what God intends for us. Far below what God would have for us. Whether it's drug use, whether it's pursuing wrong relationships, whether it's using our wealth solely for our own pleasure or comfort. Many of us adults are tempted in that way. Maybe it's seeking first what I want over what God intends. When Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things you need, well, they'll be added to you. Jesus' example, I think, is he defeats the temptations of Satan with the word of God. Teach us to know who we are, to live out of our in Christ identity, to know God's word and to build our lives on that sure foundation. And then thirdly, to seek God's purposes and not to be deterred by covetousness, lust, or any lesser pursuit. Let's pray about those things together today. Would you join me? Father, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came to this earth and was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Father, we come in his name, and I pray for your strength for your people. I especially want to pray, Lord, for those uh, watching our service, those listening who may have never received the salvation provided by Jesus on the cross. Would you, by the work of your spirit, bring that person into a personal saving relationship with you this day? Father, I pray today for those who need to be encouraged in their faith, who need strengthening, renewal, that you would work by your spirit to bring that renewed strength. I pray for those who are feeling isolated and lonely, that you would bring the encouragement of your spirit. Bless and build up and provide for and protect your people this day, Father. Finally, I want to pray for our middle schoolers this week. As they go out into our community to serve others, would you watch over them? Would you be a shield of protection around them? Would you bless the work of their hands? And for our students, Lord, make this an encouraging week. And Father, as many are looking to the coming school year with some disappointment about the changes, remind them of your great love for them. Let them draw near to you and live out of their in Christ identity. And we pray in your great and holy name. Amen.